In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number eight, the story of Lewis Scooter Libby, Chief of Staff to Vice President Dick Cheney. On the morning of July 14, 2003, 40-year-old Valerie Wilson slept in. Her husband, Joe, was already awake, caring for their toddler twins. It had been a long, hard week for the family. (sighs) Valerie awoke to the scent of freshly brewed coffee on her nightstand. Joe was standing beside the bed, holding a copy of the Washington Post. As she blinked herself awake and sipped the coffee, Valerie heard her husband say, Well, the SOB did it. When Valerie opened the paper... She saw her own name, her maiden name, Valerie Plame. It was on the op-ed page in Robert Novak's column. For most people, this would be a strange surprise, but not a life-changing one. For Valerie, though, seeing her name in the column felt like having a gun held to her head. She fought the urge to run into her twins' room and hold them tight. It occurred to her that she might never feel safe again. Valerie Plame Wilson was a spy working for the CIA. And she'd just been identified as such in a paper with global circulation. With that one sentence, everyone she'd ever befriended in every country where she'd spied might be in danger. And a target was planted firmly on her own back. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. Today, we're exploring the story of Scooter Libby and Valerie Plame Wilson. In 2003, former Ambassador Joe Wilson criticized the second Bush administration's war in Iraq. In a seeming act of retaliation, a Bush administration official informed reporters that Mr. Wilson's wife, Valerie, was an undercover CIA agent. Coming up, we'll explore how and why it happened, as well as the dramatic fallout. Everything about Scooter Libby is a bit of a mystery, right down to his real name. Born on August 22, 1950, he's believed to have been initially named Irv after his father Irving. However, he's only gone by Lewis or Scooter in his professional career. Even official court filings name him only as I. Lewis Libby. When reporters ask what the I stands for, Libby declines to answer. That absurd level of secrecy is exemplary of the tight-lipped demeanor that led Libby to the White House. From the time he entered government service, his motto was always, you never get in trouble for something you don't say. But Libby might never have ended up in the government at all if it weren't for Paul Wolfowitz, who he met while studying at Yale. Wolfowitz was a well-respected professor Libby became his favorite student and loyal mentee. 
1981, 38-year-old Wolfowitz was appointed Director of Policy Planning under Ronald Reagan. The U.S. State Department needed a new speechwriter, and Wolfowitz recalled being impressed by Libby's writing talent as a student. He suggested that Libby move to Washington and work for the administration. 31-year-old Libby eagerly accepted, resigned his law job, and headed for D.C. In 1989, Libby followed Wolfowitz to Washington once again, this time for a position in George H.W. Bush's Department of Defense. And finally, in 2000, he joined George W. Bush's team. Bush Jr., the son of Libby's one-time boss, was putting together a committee to advise his campaign on foreign policy issues. The committee played a key role in Bush's messaging strategy. George W. Bush faced a deeply divided nation when he took office. Embattled from day one, the new administration demanded the utmost loyalty from all its senior staffers. Loyalty was one of Libby's most defining traits. Wolfowitz could vouch for that after working with the tight-lipped lawyer through multiple administrations. So when Libby's resume crossed incoming Vice President Dick Cheney's desk, it looked just about perfect for his new chief of staff. In 2001, 51-year-old Libby accepted one of the most important jobs in the world. Most of us never think about the vice presidential chief of staff. At the time of this recording, the position is occupied by Mark Short, not a name many Americans know. But essentially, the VP's chief of staff is the vice president's vice president. If you want to see the Veep, you go through their chief of staff. If you want to work for them, you need to impress the chief of staff. At the slightest whiff of scandal, the chief of staff swings into action to protect the Veep's reputation. When he began working closely with Dick Cheney, Scooter Libby had no idea he'd ever become a household name. He just knew that he was committing himself indefinitely to a man one heartbeat away from the presidency. Meanwhile, just nine miles from Libby's shiny new Washington office, the woman who would someday join him in the headlines was busy at work. 38-year-old Valerie Plame Wilson had spent most of the 1990s traveling the world as an American spy. But now she spent her days in Langley, Virginia. And there's really only one thing in Langley, the CIA's headquarters. Valerie had joined the agency in the mid-1980s as a Penn State graduate with a thirst for adventure. She was one of the best shots with a handgun in her entire class of CIA recruits. In addition to target practice, she was trained in parachuting, resisting torture, outdoor survival, and of course, filing accurate paperwork. And she loved it all. After training, Valerie was assigned to the agency's European division, where she worked for several years as a non-official cover operative. Spies under official cover are pretending to be ordinary diplomats, so even if exposed, they enjoy diplomatic immunity. A spy under non-official cover, on the other hand, snoops while pretending to work in the private sector. If caught, they can be tried and prosecuted abroad. 
Valerie had the more dangerous type of undercover job until 1997 when she was ordered to return to U.S. soil immediately. There were concerns that her identity had been exposed by a KGB double agent who had infiltrated the CIA. For a few years at least, she'd need to lay low. This gave Valerie an opportunity to try something that's almost impossible while living undercover, motherhood. In 1998, she tied the knot with former U.S. Ambassador Joseph Wilson. In 2000, the couple welcomed twins, Samantha and Trevor. By mid-2001, Valerie returned to the agency. This time, instead of doing the spying herself, she would work on planning covert operations and analyzing intelligence. One of Valerie's projects involved helping to determine whether or not Iraq was trying to manufacture nuclear warheads. She found herself swept up in a strange world of high-value, high-risk commerce. The Iraqi government did its best to hide any transactions that might be deemed suspicious. Valerie, pouring through reams of data, did her best to find them. As she clicked away, Valerie figured she'd spend the rest of her career as a desk spy. Maybe someday after she retired, she'd get permission to tell some of her stories. She'd always thought about writing a memoir. But a long CIA career and peaceful retirement weren't in her future. Instead, she'd become a pawn in a battle with White House officials who were lying to the American people. That's coming up next. Hey, Parcasters. Looking for a more lighthearted listen? Then I've got the perfect podcast for you. The new Spotify original from Parcast called Incredible Feats. Hosted by comedian and podcaster Dan Cummins, Incredible Feats is a daily show spotlighting true accounts of mind-blowing physical strength, mental focus, and bizarre behavior. Join Dan every weekday as he goes behind the scenes and into the achievements of everyone from freedivers and body modifiers to ultramarathoners and moms. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. As of September 10, 2001, Vice Presidential Chief of Staff Scooter Libby was mostly known as Germ Boy for his interest in universal smallpox vaccination. But we all know what happened on September 11th. Suddenly, Germ Boy was advising Dick Cheney on how the U.S. should respond to the deadliest ever foreign terror attack on American soil. Libby and his mentor, Paul Wolfowitz, were both particularly interested in Middle East policy, but neither had expected to be part of something quite this big. The administration pushed for war. Well, technically just military operations, because they didn't plan to seek a declaration of war from Congress. Instead, they sought a temporary authorization for use of military force. Formally declaring war has all kinds of domestic implications, including expanding the president's power to control commerce. So Congress isn't keen on issuing such declarations. 
That's why every conflict the United States has entered since World War II has taken place under a statutory authorization instead. This kind of authorization is similar to a declaration of war, but doesn't expand the president's authority quite as much. It was easy to get permission from Congress to go after Osama bin Laden, who is found to be directly responsible for the 9-11 terror attacks. So on October 7, 2001, off the military went to Afghanistan to topple the Taliban. Bin Laden fled to Pakistan and evaded capture for another 10 years. Next, Bush and Cheney wanted to invade Iraq. Their motives remain controversial. Plenty of observers believe the move had little to do with national security and everything to do with Iraq's vast oil reserves. The administration, meanwhile, claimed that invading Iraq was necessary to defend the United States against future attacks. But to justify the preemptive strike, they needed to convince Congress that a threat was imminent. That's where the Wilsons came in. A rumor was circulating in the intelligence community that Iraqi officials were attempting to acquire uranium, an essential component for building a nuclear weapon. Around the same time, Valerie Wilson was investigating Iraq's purchase of some large aluminum tubes. They could have been used as rocket casings for conventional explosives or for manufacturing nukes. Then, on February 12, 2002, Vice President Dick Cheney read a report from the Defense Intelligence Agency about another alarming transaction. Supposedly, Iraq had either purchased or tried to purchase a substantial quantity of uranium from Niger. Cheney asked the CIA for an official analysis. That request landed on Valerie's desk. And Valerie realized she might have an unconventional way to help. It would require mixing her business and personal life in a way she preferred to avoid. But it might be worth it. With some trepidation, she composed a note to her acting division chief, who she just calls Scott in her memoir. The memo reminded Scott that Joe Wilson, Valerie's husband, had served as a U.S. ambassador in Gabon and during that time had made friends in Niger's government. Perhaps he could introduce a field agent to his contacts or provide valuable advice. Valerie got the news a week later on February 19th. Joe would be traveling to Niger to investigate the alleged uranium sale. Valerie was surprised. She'd expected the agency to go with a CIA employee and perhaps use her husband as a consultant. But it seemed Joe was the best man for the job. Still, the couple agreed that Joe should request not to be paid for his time. If he profited from the mission, his role might seem nepotistic, and that could undermine whatever results he brought home. In early March, Joe left for Niger. Valerie was worried for his safety, and equally worried about being left outnumbered by their spirited toddler twins. It would be a long, stressful wait for his return. Through his conversations in Niger, meanwhile, Joe pieced together a fairly simple story. At some point in June of 1999, an Iraqi businessman approached then-Prime Minister Ibrahim Hassan Miyaki about expanding commercial relations between the countries. 
Because Niger's primary exports are livestock and uranium, it could reasonably be inferred that this was in reference to a potential uranium buy. However, Joe left convinced that no uranium transaction took place. Niger's prime minister was well aware of the international sanctions against Iraq and refused to sell. Joe considered the possibility that Niger had transferred uranium to Saddam Hussein's regime in secret. But he ultimately concluded that it was impossible. Niger's two uranium mines were both too heavily regulated and subject to intensive oversight. So after nine days in Niger, the former ambassador came home. Joe was debriefed by the CIA, shared his intelligence, and considered the matter settled. The rumor about a uranium sale had just been that, a rumor. However, the Bush-Cheney administration seemed to disagree. In mid-November, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld suggested that Iraq could transfer weapons of mass destruction to al-Qaeda within a matter of days or weeks. The entire country became involved in the debate over Iraq's supposed WMDs. It led the nightly news every evening. American soldiers were already dying in Afghanistan. Now the country waited with bated breath to see if troops would be sent to Iraq, too. Valerie's work suddenly became a huge bone of contention within the government. Every day, someone new seemed to pull her into a meeting to ask about her findings. In the fall of 2002, those findings were compiled in a CIA report called the National Intelligence Estimate, or NIE. The full report and its many footnotes made it clear that nobody could prove Iraq was using aluminum tubes to build nuclear weapons. But in her memoir, Valerie calls the NIE's one-page executive summary sloppy and a colossal failure, because the summary made it sound like the purchased tubes were definitely being used to restart Iraq's nuclear program. Some people believe the White House understood the full report and used the summary as an excuse to further their agenda for war. It's equally possible they failed to read the full report and were genuinely misled by the summary. Either way, not the kind of careful consideration that should go into a decision that costs human lives. But even with the summary in hand, the White House didn't have enough to justify war. They needed to convince Congress that Iraq had uranium as well as tubes. Because if Iraq had all the ingredients to launch a nuclear attack, they'd have to authorize the use of military force. So on January 28, 2003, George W. Bush stepped up to the presidential podium to deliver his annual State of the Union address. With the eyes of the world on him, President Bush said, The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. Our intelligence sources tell us that he has attempted to purchase high-strength aluminum tubes suitable for nuclear weapons production. Watching from home, Joe Wilson was flabbergasted. He didn't know what intelligence the British government had or didn't have, but he knew what his own fact-finding mission had uncovered. No evidence of a uranium sale. 
and significant evidence that such a sale would be impossible. Valerie's jaw dropped too. The CIA had never really determined how those aluminum tubes were used. Bush didn't even tell the country that there were valid, non-nuclear uses for the same type of tubes. She was watching in real time as her work was taken out of her hands, twisted into an unrecognizable shape, and sold to the American people as a case for war. Joe wanted to fight back. He knew he'd face resistance, but he couldn't justify holding on to the truth while the public was hearing a lie. He reached out to a friend at the State Department and asked if the president had been referring to Niger, despite Joe's report that never found evidence of a uranium sale. Joe didn't receive a clear response. The Bush administration failed to retract the uranium allegations and continued its relentless pursuit of war. On March 19, 2003, the invasion of Iraq called Operation Shock and Awe began. Iraqis who had relatively comfortable lives just days before were suddenly living in bombed out shells of their former houses without power or clean water. And those were the lucky ones. 6,700 civilians were killed. The same month, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency publicly accused the U.S. president of using forged documents to make the Niger uranium allegation. It became a major international news story. Reporters started asking Joe about his trip to Niger, and he told the truth. There was no uranium sale, and the Bush administration knew it. But Joe always ended up quoted just as a former U.S. ambassador. That partial anonymity erased his decades of experience working in West Africa, making his claims easier to refute. National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice attempted to do just that in early June by claiming that nobody in her circles had known the Niger claim was false when Bush made it. Now the administration wasn't just lying, they were lying about Joe Wilson. He had personally told people close to Rice that Niger hadn't sold uranium. So one summer afternoon, he sat down and typed out his side of the story and sent it to the New York Times. His op-ed titled, What I Didn't Find in Africa, was published on July 6, 2003. It was exactly what opponents of the war had been waiting for a credible, first-hand source confirming that Bush knew he was lying, or at least should have known, when he gave the State of the Union. Vice President Cheney and his team started looking into Joe, digging for any weakness that might damage his reputation. The only thing that looked promising? Valerie's involvement in Joe's fact-finding mission. The administration decided to lean into the idea that Joe was a beneficiary of nepotism rather than a well-qualified diplomat, despite the fact that he was never paid for his work. The coordinated effort to discredit Joe Wilson involved dozens of people. Just about everyone in Washington was involved. But the main players were Scooter Libby, Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage, and Bush's senior advisor, Carl Rove. Over the next week, 
All three of them told various reporters that Joe Wilson's wife was a CIA agent and his trip to Niger was nothing more than a little nepotism. Most of the reporters didn't consider naming Wilson's wife in print. But conservative commentator Robert Novak wanted to do it. He called the CIA's official spokesman to discuss the possibility and was asked not to out Valerie. However, he was not told that she had worked undercover or that naming her might endanger anyone. So Robert wrote his column as planned, and on July 14th, the world learned the name Valerie Plame. Valerie woke up that morning to a world that would never be the same, either for her or for Scooter Libby. That's coming up next. Now back to the story. On July 14, 2003, Valerie Plame Wilson was outed as a spy in a nationally syndicated column. Political commentator Robert Novak had learned about Valerie's job from Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage and also discussed it with senior advisor to the president, Carl Rove. What Novak hadn't been told, however, was that Valerie had been an undercover agent for several years. Like most such spies, she used her real name during this time. The CIA provided her with civilian cover jobs. Now, any foreign government official known to have befriended Valerie Plame would be suspected of having leaked official secrets to the United States. Even her friends who weren't CIA sources would be in danger, and her actual sources might be in mortal peril. Not to mention Valerie herself and her three-year-old twins. She would spend the rest of her life watching her back, and she'd definitely never get another undercover assignment something she'd always hoped to pursue once her children were older. There was immediate public outrage about the outing of Valerie Plame. She was a sympathetic figure, a young, beautiful mother who was struggling to balance work and parenting. It didn't seem fair that just because her husband criticized the president, she was put in danger. Lawyers pointed out that Valerie's outing might not just be unfair, but also illegal under the Intelligence Identities Protection Act of 1982. That law makes it a crime for any person with access to classified information to intentionally disclose information that identifies a cover agent. But it wasn't clear who should be prosecuted. Not Novak, the law and the First Amendment both protect journalists from criminal penalties for reporting the news and nobody knew who had initially outed Valerie Plame to Novak. The Bush administration, including Vice President Chief of Staff Scooter Libby, hoped the whole thing would blow over before anyone could figure out who was at fault. But Joe Wilson wasn't going to let that happen. His wife had been attacked in the press, and so had his integrity. In August, Joe Wilson participated in a panel with Congressman Jay Inslee. In response to an audience member's question, he joked that he'd like to see Karl Rove, quote, frog-marched out of the White House in handcuffs. The offhand comment sparked another frantic news cycle of Plame Affair coverage. Columnists and commentators speculated that surely if Joe Wilson had it in for Rove, 
it was because Rove had outed his wife. On September 16th, Press Secretary Scott McClellan received questions about the situation during a routine press briefing. He denied Karl Rove's involvement and called the suspicion totally ridiculous. The CIA fought back. The story had been in the headlines for months, and the director was tired of his agents and agency getting thrown under the bus. On September 26th, he officially requested that the Justice Department open an investigation into the leak. On October 1st, Joe Wilson confirmed in a televised interview that he believed Carl Rove was the source of the leak and that he'd been told Rove called Valerie fair game for reporters. Valerie hadn't lost her sense of humor. She happened to attend the same church as Rove and suggested that the next time she saw him at services, she should introduce herself as fair game. But all jokes aside, the investigation quickly turned serious. Press Secretary McClellan doubled down on statements that neither Carl Rove nor Scooter Libby had been involved in the leak. That struck people as a peculiar choice, since up to this point, Rove, not Libby, had been the top suspect. It's possible the White House was attempting to deflect suspicion from Rove. But whatever their reasons, just as a grand jury was being convened, Libby's name was officially on the table. On December 30th, 2003, 43-year-old Patrick Fitzgerald was appointed as a new special prosecutor to take over the Plame affair. He began by making liberal use of a special prosecutor's favorite tool, federal subpoenas. A lot of those subpoenas went to journalists who had covered the Plame story, and suddenly the investigation was about way more than Valerie. Reporters at NBC, Time Magazine, and The New York Times all decided to challenge their subpoenas in court rather than comply. It wasn't that they believed outing Valerie was right. They just feared that cooperating with the investigation would make it easier for courts to force reporters to reveal their sources. Still, the grand jury investigation proceeded apace and Scooter Libby knew exactly what his role would be when he was called to testify. Deny, deny, deny. The secretive lawyer who wouldn't even tell people his real first name had no intention of saying anything that would make Dick Cheney look bad, or for that matter, Carl Rove, who was extremely close to both Cheney and President Bush. President Bush himself did some damage control in a speech on February 11, 2004. He insisted that he fully supported the investigation and that any leakers in his administration would be punished. It's unclear whether or not Bush knew at the time that Rove, Armitage, and Libby had all discussed Valerie Plame with journalists. If so, he didn't take any action to discipline them. Meanwhile, throughout 2004 and into 2005, Special Prosecutor Fitzgerald was constantly stonewalled by journalists, by witnesses, and especially by Scooter Libby, who was emerging as a prime suspect in the leak. Perhaps because he was so cagey in his interviews, Fitzgerald became convinced he had something to hide. It took months for the investigation to get anywhere. 
But slowly, Fitzgerald made progress. Eventually, the special prosecutor learned that Richard Armitage was the initial source who tipped off Novak that Joe Wilson's wife was a spy. But because Armitage didn't specifically refer to Valerie by name in their conversation, Fitzgerald seems to have concluded that no crime was committed. Armitage was never indicted. Instead, Fitzgerald honed in on Scooter Libby, and in particular, Scooter's conversations with a different journalist, New York Times reporter Judith Miller. Fitzgerald suspected Scooter was lying about what he'd told her. If he could prove it, he'd be able to press charges for lying to investigators. But Judith Miller wasn't talking, and she had no problem being charged with contempt of court for refusing. On July 6, 2005, she went to jail rather than reveal that Scooter Libby had discussed Valerie Plame with her. Libby had signed a waiver giving all journalists permission to testify about their conversations with him. Rove had signed a similar one a few weeks before. But Miller, along with many other journalists, believed those waivers had been coerced by the prosecution. Miller's solution was that she would only talk if she got a personal waiver, which on September 15th, she received in the form of a rather poetic letter from Scooter Libby. It read in part, Out west, where you vacation, the aspens will already be turning. They turn in clusters because their roots connect them. Come back to work and life. Until then, you will remain in my thoughts and prayers. This weirdly vivid prose confused Miller. She and Libby were just a reporter and source, not personal friends. But Judith did acquiesce to the special prosecutor's request, and on September 30th, testified before a grand jury regarding her conversations with Scooter Libby. Miller had met with Libby around July 8, 2003. They discussed Valerie's work for the CIA, although it remains unclear whether Libby actually used Valerie's name in this conversation. Miller's notes include the words Valerie Flame with an F, but she believes she heard the name elsewhere. Regardless, as a direct result of her testimony, Libby was indicted on two counts of perjury, two counts of making false statements, and one count of obstruction of justice. Significantly, Libby was never actually charged under the Intelligence Identities Protection Act. He was only charged with lying to investigators, not with actually outing Valerie. We've often repeated the Watergate-era saying, it's not the crime that gets you, it's the cover-up. And yet again, it proved true. By this point, Gallup polls revealed that nearly half of the country believed the Bush administration was not cooperating in the investigation, and 49% believed Karl Rove should resign, which Rove had no intention of doing, especially considering that after nearly two years of investigating, the Justice Department still didn't have enough evidence to indict him. All they had was Scooter Libby who they may have hoped would testify against Karl Rove in exchange for leniency. But if Scooter Libby had a smoking gun, he didn't hand it over. Instead, he resigned his position as Dick Cheney's chief of staff and prepared to defend himself in court. 
The trial finally began on January 16, 2007. Neither Libby nor his boss, Dick Cheney, testified. Judith Miller, however, did. On March 6, 2007, Scooter Libby was convicted of four of his five charges. He was acquitted on the third count regarding alleged false statements about a conversation with a Time magazine reporter. One juror, Dennis Collins, told CNN that he thought Libby was a fall guy, either for Dick Cheney, Carl Rove, or both. Judith Miller would later write that she agreed and that she felt that Patrick Fitzgerald had manipulated her into testifying against Libby. Scooter Libby was sentenced to 30 months in prison and a $250,000 fine. He would never actually serve a day behind bars. President Bush commuted his sentence to two years of supervised release, 400 hours of community service, and a quarter of a million dollar fine. This was in spite of intense pressure from Dick Cheney, who wanted a full pardon for Libby. Bush chose the middle ground of commutation, believing that he had to respect the jury's verdict, but that Libby shouldn't go to prison. Over the coming years, it became DC Republican gospel that Scooter Libby got a raw deal. Some say he was thrown under the bus by a shadowy, evil Karl Rove. Others claim the whole Plame affair was a trumped-up scandal that should never have led to a federal investigation. One of Libby's defenders, it's not clear who, finally found a friendly ear in President Donald Trump. On April 13, 2018, Trump pardoned 68-year-old Scooter Libby, clearing the way for him to return to his practice of law and perhaps even to a future White House staff. Critics suggest that the pardon was intended to signal to Trump's allies that he will pardon them if they lie to federal investigators on his behalf. And two years later, Trump did indeed commute the sentence of one of his closest allies, Roger Stone. Just like Libby, Stone was convicted of lying to federal investigators and obstructing justice. But Trump's defenders and the president himself insist that Libby got his pardon for a simpler reason, because he had been treated unfairly during the original investigation and trial. The one person who might most be able to clear things up is Scooter Libby, but he isn't saying much. In a statement following his pardon, Libby called his conviction a terrible injustice and thanked President Trump for correcting it. But he said nothing at all about how exactly he ended up as the only indicted party in the Plame affair when several other officials were implicated. As for Valerie, she maintains to this day that Libby deserved his punishment. She never worked in a senior capacity at the CIA again, and eventually left the agency altogether. Some people see Scooter Libby as the real victim in the Plame Affair. Others care more about Valerie. But there's a forest somewhere amidst these trees, and that forest is called the Iraq War. Today, it's generally acknowledged that the United States invaded Iraq based on fabricated evidence. No WMDs were ever found in Iraq. Niger never sold uranium to the Hussein regime. Valerie lost her privacy. Scooter Libby lost $250,000 and his career. 
But while American news junkies were breathlessly watching the Plame investigation, 182,000 Iraqi civilians and 4,487 U.S. soldiers lost their lives. And that happened, at least in part, because of 16 words in George W. Bush's State of the Union. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal Number 7, the story of COINTELPRO, the twisted government program that spied on U.S. activists, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Listeners, you don't want to miss Incredible Feats, the all-new Spotify original from Parcast. Host Dan Cummins free-falls straight into the weirdest, wildest achievements of all time. New episodes air every weekday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.